it might work. It does. It does engender give, authority. Give us a bit of your dog command voice. No, so in it, I don't know if I've t I must have told you this. Kate was in an Ilkley where her parents live, um, walking Hector, and up on the moor, and she this I think it was a retriever came along, uh, and Hector's occasionally a bit gets a bit spooked by the dogs, but the, the he w he went up to this retriever and they started playing. And then Kate from behind her just heard this man go, Very good, tails wagging! In this really sort of posh, booming voice. And I think he was wearing full tweed and wellies <laughs> and stuff. Uh, and Kate told me this story. And I, I, we, we, we started to wonder whether perhaps Dodds respond better to posh people. And that might be why posh people were in charge for so long. And still are. <laughs> and because we are all like Dodds. So I, on a walk, started to talk, talk to Hector in that voice. He'll sit! And he does everything I tell him, whereas normally he's very disobedient. Which taught me two things. Yes. One, posh people do have more authority than, than even like normal middle class people like me. And B, or two, uh, that <laughs> yeah, consistency, my, please. my voice does not have any authority to it whatsoever. Uh, I'd like to know how uh, similar your dog command voice is to your child discipline voice. My child discipline voice doesn't work because whenever I look serious... Ed laughs at me. If I try to glare at him, he just bursts out laughing. Your authority comes across in your writing, you see. You can't ah, have it both ways. Yes. I don't think that's true either. I was trying Absolutely. to, I was trying to give, nice you, of you. give you some kind of Massively benefit. Massively sycophantic. No, really sycophantic. <laughs> I mean, insincere, I would say. I basically, if that's your commanding voice, Steve, I don't believe you at all. And I laugh at you, just no, like Edward. I, I, do, I do have a problem. People, people assume sometimes I'm being sarcastic when I'm... I'm being genuine. I well, think it's very I have, nice a, of you I have a sarcastic lilt to my voice, clearly. I think we all do. We, we, are, we are Generation Xs, after all, gen Generation Yers. Whatever the one before Millennials is. Ooh. Yeah, we're Xs, aren't we? I think you're Xs. I'm technically a Millennial, but I reject it. <laughs> if you're on the cusp, can you choose? Well, so it's Millennial is born, after, born in 82 or afterwards, so you were coming of age around the Millennium. The millennium yeah. But I reject that because the Millennium wasn't in the start of, but didn't, Millennium didn't start at the year 2000. Started in 2001. 2001. I also so reject the idea that Rory is substantially younger than us correct. to be in a different yeah, generation. Exactly. This is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. As this is the first of a two-parter, the food will be provided to us over the course of about two hours and to you in the course of about two weeks. It is being prepared in Steve's kitchen by Steve, um, who is making <laughs> suitable clanging noises. Kitchen just noises. Theatre of the mind, everybody. <laughs> you can just imagine him uh, doing that. And so Steve, at points during this uh, wonderful broadcast, will, with his headset on, be taking us through the process. No, he's just basically cooking a so, baguette. So what's <laughs> happening now is Steve is opening the ready meal. <laughs> just wait for that sound of the film being pierced by a fork turning up that weird thing on the microwave that sets it <laughs> 800 please for three and a half minutes <laughs> stop for a minute in between and give it a shake um, I have done a swap for chinch um, a substitution that even Paul Jewell would not sanction so joining me Hugh Ferris are Stephen Wyeth chef and Rory Smith connoisseur there will be an 800 word write up on the pages of the New York Times very soon about this meal there won't be. <laughs> Including some of the authority that you clearly have in your written word. But not in my spoken voice. You can get in touch with the podcast via at setpiecemenu, setpiecemenu at gmail.com or also on Facebook, just search for setpiecemenu. We have now had four episodes of the new Alan Partridge show on the BBC and Rodri Evans has sent us three emails saying yes I am trying to gain Buffalo status through the medium of Partridge I thought this may be a shrewd angle with the bonus being that he's almost as hilarious as one of Andy's soccer stories um, 
Whether that's true or not remains to be seen. He is but funnier than all of Chinch's softer stories. Yes, that's true. Four episodes in, I think we're all, all agreeing that it is a fine piece of work. Yes. Um, on one of the emails um, that Roger has written, apart from uh, making comment about uh, Alan Partridge, he asks a question of Steve. So, Steve, from your perch, opening a bag of kettle chips, which he's going to claim that he baked himself, no doubt. What are you going to do with them in the microwave? (laughs) You can pierce the kettle chips back as well. You like crisps more than the next man. So, (laughs) do not put yourself in a position where you won't be able to reach the crisps. Look... Authoritative that was, that was real authority, yeah. And you laughed at him, which is pretty much the theme that's developing. So this question of Steve from Roger is this. Uh, you commentated, Steve, on that Hanover versus Leverkusen game when Hanover had a certain goal prevented by snow. Yes, I did. Have you ever commentated on something like this before? Also, you didn't sound very surprised when it happened. Have you commentated on enough games now that you can sense when a th- certain thing might be happening in a game, like a Hinchcliffe worldy corner or Hugo Lloris goalkeeping howler uh, that's from Rodri uh, Steve did you just expect it to happen because you're so incredibly clever well this is going to tie in with something we'll get onto later Rodri has clearly absorbed that moment through the medium of Twitter mm-hmm. through a 30 second clip of that match and yes if you listen Steve's to that clickbait if you listen I am <laughs> and if you listen to if you if you watch it via that clip you're like well the commentator doesn't seem at all surprised that the ball is stopped in the snow well that's because it had already happened several other times Ah. during the game and we had talked myself and Effen who was the co-commentator about this being a factor of the game that you would need to lift the ball off the ground if you were going to get decent distance on any intended passes yes we didn't expect it to necessarily happen with a shot but it had happened several times already in that game just not quite so spectacularly Effen Akoto was very good didn't he? He is a very good commentator Um, my wi- this, is, this is here is information that was not requested. I was at Watford versus another football team in the Championship in about 2007. Reading, I want to say Reading, maybe Reading, okay. uh, when Watford scored the or someone scored a ghost goal. In fact, Watford oh, yeah. conceded oh, yes, it. I remember yeah, the yeah, ghost yeah. Goal, so the, yes. the, the famous ghost goal is Luis Garcia, which wasn't a ghost goal because it was over the line. And even if it wasn't over the line, it was a red card and a penalty. So they got away with it, Chelsea. That's my point there. But the, um, <laughs> that clearly has not uh, died at all. That's not, that's not in my mind years. for any reason. But the, that ghost goal was much better because it was, it was an actual ghost goal. It went out for a corner. And Stuart Atwell, at just the start of a career full of refereeing clangers, <laughs> was, um, gave a goal. And I remember having to explain... I was working with the Sunday Mirror. And it was, one, it was one of the first games I did as a journalist. And I remember having to ring the desk and say, look, bit of a problem here. So I, I knew how to write about it. Like I knew what I was going to write. You know, Watford's div- Watford lose to ridiculous decision it's dead easy I thought I might have a sniff of the back page um, but the um, just, just a little bit of the back page not all of it but I, I said I didn't, I, I didn't know how to record the goal did you have to write down who, who scored it was John Eustace who scored who, who must who have scored the score. own goal but he didn't score because it went out for a corner so I was like well, how do I I ran the desk and said, what do I do Like, do I write down Eustace 16 own goal so that seems a bit harsh it, he didn't do it it wasn't him and they didn't no, it was completely unprecedented for them how to, record, how to write down who scored a goal that wasn't a goal when it was an just, own goal. Just put the word ghost. I, th- I thought we should just put Atwell. <laughs> own goal, Atwell. Stuart Atwell. Still yeah. currently flourishing in a Premier League so, refereeing career. So I do apologise to Rodri and anyone else who's like, why has the commentator not gone, this is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. 
Because it wasn't. It happened several times in the preceding minutes. It's very politician-like there by Steve. I will not resign. My comments were taken out of context. I resign. Uh, now, a lot of you want to tell us about your football on TV experiences, so we'll continue to filter that in over the coming uh, couple of shows, starting with contributions from regular contributors. Mike, who is at Victoria Guna on Twitter, and Alan Shepard, who is not an astronaut. Um, both are based in Canada, so I have this to offer. Firstly, from Mike. Good day, Andy, and the rest of the lads. The rest of the lads then, Mike. Uh, You guys were talking on episode 120 if Canada has a domestic league. Well, Canada is finally getting a tier one domestic football league kicking off on April the 27th of this year. The Canadian Premier League, CPL. Currently, there are only seven clubs in the league. Pacific FC in Victoria, FC Edmonton in Edmonton, Calgary FC. Where's it from? Yep, Calgary, Valor FC, Winnipeg, York 9 FC in York, uh, Forge FC in Hamilton, and uh, HFX Wanderers FC from Halifax. Now, the aim is to have 16 clubs by 2022, says Mike. Talking about TV coverage, though, Media Pro, the group who produces La Liga, UCL, League One, sorry, League One, worldwide feeds uh, to Canada, signed a 10-year, $200 million Canadian dollar deal with the league. They're planning on producing streaming services where you can access all content through a mobile and desktop app, live matches of the CPL, the Voyagers Cup or the FA Cup in Canada, and also the national team, plus the chance of selling match of the week to the terrestrial stations uh, here in Canada. That's from Mike. Alan says, having grown up in the UK, the one thing I really miss about coverage here in Canada is match of the day. I have a full-time job and a toddler, so realistically, watch one or maybe two games a week. I'd love an in-depth highlight show wrapping up all the week's action. That would be great. I too am excited about the Canadian Premier League rights moving to DAZONE uh, next season. Uh, that is, of course, the Premier League rights in Canada. Uh, MLS will still be on regular cable, so there won't be a complete monopoly. I've seen some concerns that the casual viewer in Canada will be less likely to encounter soccer this season, either in pubs and bars or while channel surfing at home, with the Premier League moving off cable next season. So there's a gap perhaps there to be filled by the new league in Canada as well as MLS. Uh, The other downside of watching football in Canada, by the way, says Alan, I've yet to hear Chinch's co-commentary. Looking forward to finding out what the hype's about one day. (laughs) Thanks, Alan. Don't bother. Uh, Yeah, that is not something to worry about. Uh, can I can I offer you a memory? Please do. When I was a, a nipper, 14, at Stroll, we went on a, a trip to the battlefields, the First World War battlefields, and I remember sitting in a weird Belgian hotel room with Craig Hebbard flitting through the TV, probably hoping to find like RTL or something. And <laughs> the, um, the let's so, all be honest. Yes, some people will understand what that means. The others who don't don't need to know. No, exactly. Uh, I was young. And impressionable. As long as you're near the border of Germany, you've got a chance. And it was, and it was mainly trade, anyway. Um, the, but we happened upon this, this show, which was, I presume on Belgian terrestrial TVs, it wasn't a very fancy hotel, um, which was all the goals, it would have been like a Monday night, all the goals from all of the leads in Europe. So you, you had English, this would be late 90s, I guess. Mm. So the Premier League, Italy, Spain, Germany, and then all the minor leads. And it was on for an hour, and it was... There was no real analysis, particularly. There was just, this is what's happened. A bit like what they used to do on Transworld Sport. And, and Eurogoals on Eurosport used to have like a 90-minute programme where they had everything, yeah. didn't they? That is a brilliant... I'm amazed that no broadcasters thought of doing that. That All right, you might not have the, obviously won't have the Premier League action, but if, say, ITV, who now have La Liga, could they not buy up the rights to... Or even BT Sport, could they not... It wouldn't be a huge amount of money to package all those goals together on a Monday. Just highlights. Or a Tuesday. And just, just do the highlights... No weird camera angles like on the Serie A highlight show that used to, used to be on BT where they, they filmed everything from ground level and they had no idea what was going on. <laughs> but with the, with the major leagues that you've got, but also throw in Turkey, throw in Greece, throw in, the, the, not, not, not necessarily every game, Belgium and Holland. 
but the, the games of teams that people might be interested in. And put it on for an hour, an hour and a half. It must be relatively cheap TV to buy the highlights rights to the Greek Super League and the Alsvenskan and whatever, and the, the Raffeson leader in Switzerland. Couldn't cost a vast amount of money, and I'm sure that people would consume football that way. Uh, because I suppose one of the issues might be is that the rights holders for the live football will block anybody else being able to buy the, high, the, the highlights, so they won't be two different sets of rights. That's but true. If yeah. in, a, in an ideal world, and that was a possibility, yes, I, I remember sticking on Euro goals when I was a student and just having it on the background and thinking, oh, Ajax won this week. You know, that, that's... Somebody had Sky when he was a student. Jesus. Yeah, get him. It's a house of five. But uh, he didn't even have to rent his TV. No, oh, we rented God. a TV with Sky. It was £4.50 each for a month. I mean, in, that is in the 1980s, that was the GDP <laughs> of several major countries. <laughs> I think you find it was 1998. Uh, finally for now, Max Brenker has responded to Steve having another chance to air his grievances with the away goals rule in the Champions League, which happened on last week's pod. Uh, dear Andy and gang, so just the gang then, uh, one thing to add on the away goal rule, says Max, it is the only way a football game creates an all-or-nothing hero moment. When Marcus Rashford stepped up for that penalty against PSG, it was either score and go through or miss and go home. Plus, after the score that turned the game, you often get the hilarious situation that a team which has subbed all its forwards for centre-backs suddenly has to try and get a goal against a team with five forwards and no full-backs and defensive midfielders, leading to even more chaos, which some people might see as a negative, actually, says Max, who also says, keep up the good work. I'm not, I can't dispute any of what Max says, apart from the fact that the away goals rule is nonsense. You play 90 minutes at home, you play 90 minutes away, you have an outcome decided by the number of goals that have been scored by each side in those two games. Another politician's, another politician's response by basically saying it's fake news. Anything that is counter to his argument is fake news. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, Steve, at setpiecemenu and setpiecemenu at gmail.com is where you'll find us. Now, our next two pods will form a two-part conversation about football fans. It's one of those constructs where part one is a how do we get here and part two is a what happens next. We're calling it the Brexit format. So welcome to part one, where we solicit the views only of experts and ignore all the messages on the side of buses of the modern football fan. How much has being a fan changed, particularly in the last few years? It is a long time since pictures of a crowd were black and white and dominated by men standing in suits and hats applauding politely. Indeed, the expressions of support for your team inside a stadium in particular now seem to include one fan attacking an opposing player. But now supporters can extend those expressions of support beyond the match, with often similar violence in their vocabulary in the arena of social media, which provides a strange paradox of both relative anonymity and avatars that identify you first and foremost as a fan of your club. So how much has being a football fan changed? And can you even be called a fan if your Twitter handle isn't at LFC five times Salah's the best I hate United? And thank you to all those people who have uh, contributed already to this debate via email and uh, Twitter in, in slightly less um, angry ways than most Twitter discourse uh, takes place. And just to say, some of the comments about how you support your club is very much to the heart of the debate. Uh, who you support is something that we talked about a little bit earlier on in the canon of Set Piece Menu. Uh, so 96 and 97 uh, is where you'd like to head if you haven't heard those. So this is more of a how do you support your football club and how has it changed? Well, so this, the reason I suggested this subject, Hugh, as the primary content generator of this podcast, <laughs> is because Henry Winter tweeted... Quantity. Quality. A little, from a, well, I don't remember which game it was. He, he was at a game and he saw a half and a half staff. And every time Henry, who I love dearly, sees a half and half staff, he gets very cross because he hates half and half staffs. Piers Morden picked up on it and said, this is an abomination. It might be the North London derby. Um, this is an ab- abomination. Who'd buy this? Blah, blah, blah. 
And I thought, well, who would buy half and half scarf? I've got a half and half scarf. River versus Bocker. Very proud of it. <laughs> uh, and the answer to people who buy half and half scarves are kids. People who want a souvenir, don't want the programme. Uh, presumably people who are cold might pick one up every now and again. Uh, and people who would go into a game who maybe don't kind of feel that kind of sense of I refuse to wear anything that's been touched by the colours of my rival. That, that This idea that you you have to be pure. Anyway, I, I tweeted that mainly to annoy Piers Morgan. And it worked, which is excellent. Which <laughs> is uh, something that pleases us all. Yes, I feel as though I did my bit for society. Uh, but it did make me think that there is there is a real kind of... There's a purity about some fans. And I, I think it's quite... It's become quite performative being a fan online. And I think we'll explore later on... Uh, whether that's true within a stadium. I think being a fan has probably always been quite performative. But there does seem to be this thing of there's a a right way to be a fan and there's a wrong way to be a fan. So not going to games, wrong way to be a fan. Which I think is quite harsh on all those people who don't live in the country or can't afford (laughs) to go to games. I think that's that's quite tricky. There's not buying half and half scarves. That's the right way to be a fan. Uh, Singing, right way to be a fan. Which I think is quite harsh on people who don't want to sing. I mean, you can still be a supporter who doesn't want to sing. He's got a sore throat. <laughs> the, the, the mildly ill, for example. No, I, I think, I mean, we've all been to games where sometimes, you know, sometimes you're not feeling it. You don't have to, you don't ha- it doesn't make you any less of a fan. And it got me thinking about this kind of, this idea that, that there is a kind of standard to which we are all held as fans. And I think we should probably dismiss the fact that we are all involved in the media. We are all first and foremost. We we are in the media just we were football fans. Yes, That's and also we're having yeah. a discussion without Mr. Andy Hinchcliffe because simply he would have nothing to add He's because not he has not uh, ever been and continues to not be a fan. Just quickly, Henry Winter was about the uh, Borussia Dortmund Spurs game. Right, yeah. So a lot of people, got, when I tweeted that, a lot of people said, you know, I'll, I'll often buy a half and half scarf as a memento from a European game because it's an unusual combination or whatever and I think that's fine. I don't quite understand why we're all so cross about half and half scarves. I don't understand why people... I, I realise when you see River versus Bocker, got one of those, just don't know if I've mentioned it. Uh, it's come up as a, about as three y- minutes ago. You might think that's a bit stupid, but ultimately they are harmless, half and half jobs. And so many of the things that we, that we that, that are taken as being bad about modern football, that anything that, that is taken as into this whole kind of against modern football debate is basically harmless or, or in some ways positive. And the other thought that, that I had, and this is totally unrelated, I can't think of a segue, thinking about this last night, it's interesting that we, we bemoan how fans have been priced out of games, which they have been, no question about that. We bemoan that football has become much more elite in terms of who can watch it. You've got to pay for a, a TV subscription or go to the pub or have enough kind of technical, equi- technical equipment to stream, which a lot of people don't have. It's, it's increasingly an expensive business watching football. It's interesting that attendances are much better now than they ever used to be. So if you, you watch games from the 80s when it was all affordable, and I think we, it's, it's so obvious a point that the experience of going to football is much safer now that we probably don't need to linger on it. But it was much more affordable in the 70s and 80s. Stadiums weren't full. But people are also buying into an ideal. That's all part of the way that football has been packaged and sold on mm. to us. You're not just buying into the experience of being a fan as you would have been maybe during the 80s and there obviously were issues related to going to a game with that but it is much more now 
see and be seen, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an elitist pursuit which people want to, to buy into. Sorry. No, I just went... Rory, Rory said uh, a lot there. It's essentially yes. the whole podcast in a, uh, an introduction, which is very useful because we're going to unpack all that and we're going to talk about them all individually. Or if you don't have time, you can stop listening now. Now I up. would stop. Just stop, go on to the next one. And, and Steve's right to kind of make that reference as well, um, which is to something that Rory mentioned, which is the word performative. Uh, let us um, uh, at least briefly define our terms. To be performative, Rory, is to essentially want to be able to illustrate in the wider sphere of society that you are something. You want to perform that to others rather than be necessarily satisfied that you are that person. So in this context, I guess when I say that something is performative, when we say that something is performative, yeah, I suppose that's, it's not just the act that you're supporting your team, it's that you want to be seen to be supporting your team. So Tim Stillman writes, and uh, thank you once again for all your contributions uh, already at this stage. Um, I have thought for a while that more generally society has entered the second dandy phase. The dandy craze originally took off in the Victorian area shortly after the invention of the photograph. People became more aware of their appearance and what it said about them and consequently became more performative uh, with their fashion choices. Hence me defining the term prior to this very eloquent email from Tim. I think the digital era and one of its key offshoots, social media, has done something similar to us but emotionally rather than sartorially. We are far more aware of how we are perceived now and what we say and do says about us to others. Within this context, we have become emotionally more performative and we fit into cliques more easily than ever before. In the context of fandom, this has increased tribalism in my view because lots of other people can see it and with that comes a desire to impress. This has been in effect inside football stadiums ever since away fan travel became more viable and two sets of fans were pit against each other. But once the game finished and we left the stadium, that sort of chest beating dissipated. Now, though, we are constantly in view of other fans and our own fans, and therefore the chest beating continues. In a sense, we are constantly performing, and that has led to a far more intense and constant tribalism. So, I, yeah, that, that is a much more eloquent way of putting something that I've, I've, I've felt for a long time, I think, which we've probably talked about, which is that when, when we were younger, not, not because we were younger, but because there were, you know, t- less time had passed, the world was different, people had different lives. Um, if your team lost on a Saturday or a Sunday, you would go to school or work on the Monday, you'd get a bit of a ribbing, and then by Tuesday, you might still get a couple of jokes, but it had basically died down, and then by Wednesday, you're looking forward to next Saturday then. So the, kind of the, the pain of defeat lasted for 48 hours, 72 hours at most. It is now constant, and that, I think, is a, is a significant difference in, in what it feels like to be a fan, because you suffer a defeat much more um, whether you enjoy victory a lot more, I don't know. I, I, my my instinct now is that I think I saw someone on Twitter say this, and it may have been it may be something you you, you can pull up. But I don't sense there's certainly a, a subsection of fans on Twitter who seem to n- enjoy their their team's victory rather less than they enjoy their rivals' defeat. Stuart Todd says, a point I've seen elsewhere but got me thinking is do fans now define themselves against other clubs, mm. or probably more accurately their fans, rather than celebrate their own club slash players more so than in the past? He says he has seen uh, some exceptions, uh, but not too many. And it is something that we've spoken about before. You uh, define yourselves against the, or you're, you are more happy when the team that you do not like loses than you are when your own team uh, wins. So and that's that another p- aspect of being performative. You are able to rib other other fans of other teams. But that partly falls into the um, the social media banter trap, where everything is kind of reduced to banter, partly by kind of betting company accounts and substandard websites, where everything becomes kind of 
And there's actually there's a there's an there's an extra little addendum to that which I've noticed, rel- probably within the last year, you see more and more news stories, which are trailed as Manchester City fans furious with or Manchester United fans react to, and it's all this drift towards the extremes, which I think is is fueling this this sort of. And it's often very selective. Yeah, it's, it's but it, so as a journalist, you used to um, whenever a major news story happened, you used to. Um, have to go and ask people, actual people, to their faces what they thought of it, and that vox popping uh, vox was the pop, which is the, the thing that we all hate the most. Yeah, it's the worst yeah. part of the job yeah. by Terrible. some distance. Yeah. But you used to actually have to go and vox pop because that was how you got people's reaction to something. So if, if I don't know if a train crashed or whatever, you'd go out to the local area and say what did you see and what do you think and have the trains always been rickety or whatever. And I remember actually working on the when when Maddie McCann went missing, which is I think is it an anniversary of some it sort is, this yes. year, ten yeah. years. Yeah. Um, uh, more than I think. The yeah, it must be more than ten years. But I remember when Maddie McCann went missing. I was at the Mirror. This has been a very nostalgic episode for me <laughs> so far. And I had to do a vox pop. It's the first time I ever had to do a vox pop online. But you had to go onto forums, and there was some dark stuff on those forums. They were horrible. I think that must have been in the era before most newspaper stories yeah. on online had comments and stuff. But it was horrible stuff that you had to wade through and pick That's out. That's a the long time bit. ago in the context of. Of online yeah. forums and, and no Twitter sourcing that kind of thing, yeah, yeah. No, not even a face. I remember, in fact, I'd only just joined Facebook because I remember my editor at the time saying, "Is it a sex website?" <laughs> and I said, "No," but it turned out it I was can wrong. be. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, it was, it was partly uh, partly based on that when it was uh, created. And um, but now, obviously, you, d- you don't vox pop anymore. So people just pull off whatever they can from Twitter, and it's always the most extreme opinions. And, that and the BBC got into trouble recently for doing that on, a, on an article. They, they basically created an article yeah. based on um, the, the views of somebody on Twitter and each one of the examples that they used was essentially somebody who had about 10 followers yeah. so did not yeah. represent anyone that many people. No, exactly. And I think, but <laughs> enough the, people. But the composite effect of that is that people then read those stories and if you, so if you get a story saying Man City, Man City fans furious at preferential treatment for Man United and you, what you've got is seven or eight people saying things that aren't really that furious and one or two who are generally sort of enraged by it. Um, what you then get is other fans mocking Man, Man, Man City fans. You then get other Man City fans defending their own fans against those, yeah. that mockery. You then, it doesn't really matter what the, con- the, the context of it was, you then get this kind of idea of Man City fans are nuts. And it all just gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that it drags the whole conversation down. And th- those stories I find quite pernicious. There's an increasing phenomenon, I'm sure most people have noticed it, that fans, home fans in a stadium who were sat near the away section Mm. seem to spend considerably more time goading the away support than watching the game. And that is translated from social media, where we've discussed the idea that football fans live in an echo chamber of their own support, so they see things through that prism. But then there are also those, by extension who absorb themselves in the social media of rival clubs, seemingly so they can just be mm. offended by what some of those rival fans are saying about them and leap to extreme defences in completely pointless arguments. What, what I love about that phenomenon, which I agree with you is entirely right, is that you get this, you get this mockery of other fans for thinking the exact same things about their club yep. that fans of another club think about their own club. It's... All fans are the same. Journalists talk so much about which are the worst fans on Twitter. And gen- generally, people say, oh, Liverpool, Liverpool are the worst fans on Twitter. This, in, in my experience, there are some clubs who have more fans, and therefore you get greater numbers of, of fans abusing you for criticising them. 
they're fans thinking the same way. All fans are the same because the act of being a fan is a universal thing, and they all all the behaviours are the same. They translate across club colours and rivalries and, and countries to an extent. And whether you support a team or a player, it's it's all the same. And it is this exposure, I think, to the opposite side and being continually told that the opposite side are furious about something or th- are doing something hilarious that worsens this tribalism. Uh, Hugh has an email to read out. I do. It's um, from Keith McMahon who says, Hi guys, what strikes me about modern fandom is the absolute... It's an ugly phrase, that modern fandom. It doesn't seem to roll off the tug particularly easily. Is the absolute refusal of groups of a team support base to accept any kind of criticism of their team or players on their team, which then escalates into attacks on uh, those critiquing a player or a team's performance. This, of course, mainly happens on Twitter. And this is the away from the ground fandom, whereas at the ground, younger folk have been priced out of the game, so there's just a bunch of grumbling 40 to 60 year olds muttering to themselves on the terraces generally and adding nothing to the atmosphere, saying football is over. Let's go all in on Kabaddi. Um, <laughs> And Craig, uh, at Cutout Craig, has tweeted, things seem to be a lot more toxic now that fans can argue and compare every aspect of a football club on Twitter without fearing a punch. People are using the anonymity to spew hatred in a way that you wouldn't see as much without it. There seems to be a rise of trolls too, where people set up an account claiming to be a fan of a certain team, only to tweet ridiculous things to get retweets uh, and make the fan base of that team uh, look stupid, which is a further layer of um, performative behaviour because you are attempting to not only in support of your own team but you are literally like an enemy spy behind lines where you are messing it up for them too in a way that only you know how. But this does this not lead us on to what is quite an important aspect of this conversation which is how much do we think there is a firm barrier between the online fan and the fan in the stadium or the pub. I remember doing the radio after um, the Birmingham derby when Jack Grealish got attacked and talking about this issue. And there was a lot of kind of disagreement over whether it's fair to say that social media has had any influence. So we know that players got attacked previously. We know that football used to be a much more violent place. And we know that there's n- that it's dangerous to overreact. And I think a lot of, you know, the, I think the, you had South Yorkshire Police coming out. It's always South Yorkshire Police. <laughs> coming out and saying that we needed that there needs to be kind of more officers at grounds. I think uh, there was a, a lot of sensible suggestions saying stewards need to be paid more, which is a, I don't think anyone would disagree with. There was, or a, big, there was a big game at Sheffield Wednesday, I think the night before, the right. day before that Grealish incident, and, and there'd been some issues with incursions, I think, there as well, which yeah. is why South Yorkshire Police got involved. I think there's a, there's a one of, maybe the deputy superintendent of one of those forces, one of the, possibly South Yorkshire Police, I might be wrong, is the kind of national lead on football policing. Right. I don't think, if you speak to people who deal with these things within clubs and within support organisations, I don't think they are regarded as the gold standard of supporter police relations. GMP in Manchester are by all accounts outstanding uh, but and genuinely try to have yeah. a dialogue. So we, we, we know it's too basic just to say this is Twitter's fault. You know, there's Jack Grealish got punched in the head by, what was he called, Paul, Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell. He was jailed for 14 weeks. Presumably not, not the shampoo guy. Is there a shampoo guy called Paul Mitchell? Well, that joke doesn't, that joke doesn't <laughs> work. No, no. Well, if it is the same guy, then, then his, his life <laughs> and career has taken a turn <laughs> real massively yeah. for like, the worst. I'm slightly yeah. upset that it's Rory, the guy who doesn't do anything with his hair that knows about I, I wash it. <laughs> he has the most yes, hair. Paul Mitchell, professional hair care. Although I don't wash it with Paul Mitchell products. I, I just use whatever cake's got next to the shower. <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, I bet that's popular. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I refer you to my original comments. <laughs> I cr- I'm currently using Aussie, the Aussie blondie stuff, just Kate's blonde. Um, I am not blonde, but it, it turns out it doesn't make a blind you bit of difference. You will be. You will anyway, be. Anyway, <laughs> but you can't. It's too. It's too 
reductive to say to say Grealish got attacked because of Twitter, because Twitter's changed everything. Because football used to be much worse. Football, especially in terms of violence, obviously, football used to be. This is not a new thing. It does happen. It's terrible. It tends to come in waves. We saw three in a weekend. But do we think that the 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 social media discourse has changed the discourse in real life for fans. Stephen? The, the extraordinary thing about that Grealish incident, though, was, of course, that as the supporter was led away, there were those cheering their approval amongst the Birmingham support, and there was Birmingham fans on Twitter expressing their delight that it had happened. Mm. And despite all of the condemnation from... 99% of football followers about that incident, we then immediately saw something similar in the game between Arsenal and Manchester United where a fan came on to the pitch at Emirates and uh, got in the face of Chris Smalling. So that does show you the impact that it might not be just social media, it might be the reaction of those supporters in the stand, but you got almost immediately, despite this being a horrific and ludicrous incident, you, you got a copycat almost immediately. So we can we, and it's very hard to apply motivation to somebody who has done such a ridiculous thing, but can we try and figure out why that guy Paul Mitchell and others have decided to express their feelings of support for a club in that way? And to, to widen out to the Raheem Sterling incident, and Rory, you've spoken to Raheem recently about it and his subsequent Instagram post where he talks about the media reflecting on issues of race. But just in that moment where uh, Chelsea fans are alleged to have um, racially abused him during a game um, at Stamford Bridge, are those fans doing that as an example of what we've already spoken about on this episode, they are being performative. They are attempting to show others around them that by chipping away at any possible Raheem Sterling advantage that he has over their team because he's one of Manchester City's best players, mm. are they thinking, are they using racism, alleged racism, um, as a vehicle to display their great feelings of support for Chelsea and that they feel that they need to, in an attempt to be more to to be considered a more loyal Chelsea fan than anybody else ever on social media or in Stamford Bridge. Are they attempting to use racism as a vehicle for that? Because either they're ignorant and they don't understand how serious that is, or they understand how serious that is and realise that that is the strongest hammer blow that they can strike against one of their team's opponents. Uh, yeah, that's a, I mean, I, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean. Yes, yeah, so it's hard to apply motivation, but as an example... As someone who's never gone to football and got really, really angry with the opposition for trying to beat my team, because I understand that that's kind of their job, yes. um, it's, it's hard to kind of to understand that, that level of anger. I think the general, the general kind of accepted theory is that, th as I think John Barnes has said, if you have racist thoughts in you, when you are offered the anonymity of the mob, which you have in a crowd and you are a, a sort of heightened state of emotion, you will forget to keep those horrible thoughts to yourself. And that's when people who, who are like... I, I, I can't imagine ever using that, the epithet in question, because I, I don't... I mean, it would never... It just 
would never kind of occur to me. Well, it's, it's, it's not in your vocabulary. It's not in your mind to use. And funnily enough, I put that question that I just put to you guys to John Barnes, mm. and and he rejected it. And he said that that, that was not oh, a that symptom right? of that. He felt. But John Barnes has been on a lot of outlets recently talking about a lot of incidents. Liam Neeson about Raheem Sterling, um, talking very articulately about, and we bow to his his greater knowledge. But he he comes at it from a certain point of yeah. view, which, which he's been very consistent about for years and years and years and yeah. years. Um, so you can understand that he wouldn't necessarily think that that was the reason why they were doing it. It well, was very much born of racism and that's it. Well, also on a, on a kind of, um, on an unrelated tangent, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of unfair on John Barnes to make him, as the day-to-day would have it, the spokesman for black people. Yeah. It's, that's not, I mean, he's a really eloquent speaker and he's got really strong opinions and he, everything's really well thought out and he's John Barnes and do what he likes. But his experience, his, his viewpoint doesn't, also, just because he's black doesn't mean that he... doesn't he, speak for, for all, the, all black the, former footballers or black football fans. The way that he is used And he wouldn't want to either. Here's a black guy. He'll tell us what, yeah. what black people think is in itself quite racist. Yeah. Um, and, the, and he has made that point yeah. several times. Yeah. So the, it's hard to say whether it's being used as an... As it, whether it's basically coming out because these people have racist thoughts and that is, is what they... When they see Raheem Sterling, they think he's a black whatever or whether it's because it's almost a conscious thing they're thinking, right, how do I get under his skin? And to be honest, I think at the height of it, when it when Raheem first put that on Instagram, I think I did tweet something about it, and someone said, oh, no, it's, you know, it's your job as, as a fan to try and unsettle the opposition. Right. okay. And I think the person who said that said, this is going too far. But that, yes, you know, that's so this, this is an example of that in extremis. Yeah. But I don't, I, I'm not that's sure I buy that. That's the question honest. I put. I just wonder. I, I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if it's, if it's, if anyone's thinking, the reason just as John Barnes can't speak for all black people, yes. we can't speak for all football fans. No, I know. And the reason that I was putting the point to you is because I wonder to what extent tribalism has taken over the game so that it is considered part of your arsenal as a fan to be able to use that because you still think, and yes, the cover, uh, cover of anonymity is one thing, Rory, but also the cover of anonymity in that everybody would do it in their situation because they're fans and boy, do they support their team. Yeah, possibly. I, I, yeah, there's a, whether it's right or not, I don't know. But there's, there's, that theory probably holds water. And there, there, there does seem to be a, um, a subsection of fans who re- regard it as their job to, to unsettle the opposition and to, to kind of... Mark Chapman actually made this point that we... BBC Radio 5 BBC Live. Radio 5 Live presenter. Chapman. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. And we're a friend of his show. Yes, Shows. exactly. He has so many. Um, he is con- he's Damn ubiquitous. He's, um, <laughs> Can you not give me one? It's a um, very greedy man. <laughs> Awful business. Before, sorry, before you make this point about yeah. chappers, uh, I'm assuming everybody wants butter on their chicken and bacon sandwiches. Well, obviously. Yes, well, please. obviously. Thank you very and much for giving I'm us gonna, an update on how you're getting I'm, on. I'm going to put guacamole on mine. Is, does anyone have any strong feelings either way about that? So the, Give one, it a go. the one thing that you choose to lubricate your sandwich is the one thing that I'm not that bothered about. Well, see, there we go. Yet again, an example of how I get judged on things that I will or will not eat, whereas you're allowed to have all sorts of discriminations. So, yeah, if you've got any ketchup or mayo, let me know. Uh, yeah, um, but... but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will provide you with some ketchup, so mayo, not so much. Back to Chappers. Can't remember. Sorry. <laughs> what were we talking about? Back to Chappers. I, will, I, will, I wish I could, but Steve completely distracted me and I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. It, it was never my intention, although the butter guacamole it, thing was more important. It's fine because I didn't want to give Chappers any credit for an insightful thought. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, as we said, his ubiquity um, precludes him from having another show that talks about him. And he's been uh, beaten by guacamole. So that's always nice to know. But um, anyway, we've not answered the question. If we accept that football's not worse than it used to be, it doesn't have a bigger problem than it used to have, that's self-evidently true. Do we, how much do we think 
social media is the driver for a perception of increased hostility. Stephen Chicken, who is also a fan of the show, um, says the weird thing is that a lot of it seems not to have changed since I was a child, by which I mean people still get very haughty and defensive like they did when they were nine years old. This seems especially true of the big six clubs. Being in the harshest part of the media glare seems to make fans go a bit funny. Manchester City supporters used to be some of the most realistic in the country. Now their fan sites have an undercurrent of conspiratorial everyone is against us, which is something that we've mentioned already. And the weird thing is they're kind of right, by which I mean other fans will also use conspiracy theories either to wind rival fans up or because they actually believe it. See recent tweets about City's cup draws this season, which misunderstand what randomness looks like. <laughs> and as a person who only gets paid for City home games, I can appreciate that it is far too random for my liking. <laughs> and of course, that's a minority of people, says Stephen, but Twitter, etc., make them feel like they're under attack at all times. Just using City as an example, by the way, he thinks that all the big six uh, clubs are like this. So this is another thing that I think is quite interesting, and I don't have a conclusion to be drawn on it, but... The thing about the top of the bid six is probably right that there is such saturated, saturated coverage of them that all criticism is... And it's always the bid. You, know, you never see Oxford fans furious about something that Peterborough have done or whatever. Swindon. They're Oxford's rivals, aren't they? Swindon. Um, so the, there is probably... Well, Cambridge. A, that's a different type of rivalry. Uh, the How do you sit on the Oxford game? Are you particularly uh, hateful of Oxford? No. Of your Cambridge roots? No, never interested in it in the slightest. No varsity blues for you then? No, just the sort of people who really cared about that sort of stuff were not the type of people I wanted to be friends with. Before Stephen is guacamole disrupts your train of thought again, carry on Rory. Yeah, so there is this kind of extra focus on the the bid six which I think probably does engender itself to, to a degree of conspiratorial thinking. We've talked before about how all clubs now seem to have siege mentalities. It's The siege mentality appears to be the default setting for all managers. They, there is an assumption, as with certain politicians, that, that there is sycophantic coverage, like Steve and my writing, and there is... <laughs> and there is Why fake can't you just offer support to a mate anymore? There is see, look, this is the extremes yeah, that we're getting to. There is twice. hostile... <laughs> fake news that is unfair and wrong and it has to be agenda-born rather than actually just being, you know, they didn't play that well or such and such isn't that good player or whatever. And I think that that lends itself to a certain subsection of fans whose views are then given a megaphone by by Twitter, by other users on Twitter and by the traditional media who want those easy vox pop clicks. And I think that's all that's all true. But the other thing that I think is quite interesting is that, that the, the stuff that fans now have to react to, and City are a great example of this, is now really different. And we've seen it with, with pretty much every major club in the last 10 years, I guess, where they've, they've had to kind of, the fans have had to get themselves into a position on an issue that they're not really, that doesn't lend itself to that type of analysis. Now, with City, the, the, the current one is is these four investigations into their finances that Man City fans now have to have have to take a position on human rights in the Gulf states on and, and a very strong position not and just a strong a position, position yeah they've got to take a position on kind of on the concept of sports washing and of kind of their club being used this proud institution being used to basically redeem a road to rehabilitate a, an Emirati reputation in, the, in terms of soft power and all that stuff. They've, they've got to understand what their position is on FFP, and which is a really, FFP is a really complicated thing, and the legal processes, they've got to have a, a position on whether their club should be allowed to recruit players from outside the EU under the age of 18, uh, whether there should be a transfer, but all this stuff, this is all complicated stuff, and it's not the sort of stuff that many fans prior to 
the modern era, I'm doing the in point marks with my fingers, would would have had to kind of come up with it. It's not the sort of material that is traditionally covered by I support a football team. And it's the same with, you know, Manchester United and leverage debt or um even do you know even the kind of the merchandising thing that we are all as fans battling our instinctive desire to see our club be as big as possible and to, to be as popular as possible and, and to be as, as successful as possible possible which it requires making money and not wanting to see that that badge tarnished and the 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 institution that the club is rather than the brand turned into into some sort of commodity that's a really difficult thing to to get a handle on and to work out what your posi- position in it is and because of tri- the inherent tribalism the reaction is always to defend what your club does whether that's on sports washing on ffp or in terms of one of your players being accused of racism it is always to defend the club but having been mocked for supporting you i'm going to disagree with you i don't see why do fans have to get involved in that sort of thing why because do they have being to goaded aren't yeah, they aren't they baited no no no, no 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 i think not by fans of rival clubs Manchester no i don't think so i don't think that, i don't think that applies in manchester this case. city is a club in the examples that Rory has set out don't need their fan base to jump to their defence with other fans on Twitter and if they are going to submerge themselves into finding out what other fans are saying about them and rise to the bait then surely more for them it's it's a situation that is beyond their control completely it's beyond the control of any set of supporters so why why allow you to get your blood up and put yourself in the line of fire of dealing with that on the club's behalf? Because it's not going to make any difference to the outcome. You you going onto Twitter to defend City's position when it comes to financial fair play is not going to make any difference whatsoever to the outcome of the four separate investigations. I can understand why you would maybe be goaded into some kind of defiant support of your team within a football stadium if there's... 25, 30,000 home fans giving you grief and as a hardy bunch of 3,000 away fans you feel like well your honour is somehow being questioned so therefore you need need to make your point I just don't understand why you why you get sucked into these sorts of arguments on social media because it's another element of being a performative fan you have to be seen to be defending your club yeah, yeah. because it is another element I know of why being, they're doing it I just, yeah. I just you know or I know why in their minds they're doing it I just think Come on, you know, there's, there's other ways baffling, to support yeah. your club. Well, that's the thing. We all know why it happens, and we all know... Yeah, and to, to be honest, to be fair to Hugh, and I know I, I no knowed him rather quickly, I think part of it is because there's criticism from other fans, and you, you don't want that criticism to to be proved correct, and just acquiescing to it makes it look like they're right, and they've got a point and all that, so you, you rise to the bait. But I think it's also, I think it's also to do with, with wanting your club not just to be a good football team, but to represent something more, yeah. to be kind of almost like a morally good thing. Especially like if that was a reputation that your club was known for previously and there will be loads that will claim that and, I and think others who, who don't necessarily. I think uh, probably with one or two exceptions, Millwall being one who've, who've kind of always revelled in their own popularity, to the extent that I think it actually makes them quite popular in a weird way. <laughs> um, the, I think most clubs have always traded on the idea that we are, you know, we are somehow better than all of the other clubs we have away or with the School yeah, of Science exactly. or the Academy of Football or whatever. And, and that's reflected sometimes in this new... And we have yeah. a philosophy. You don't have a philosophy, so, now, so therefore we're better than in you. this new sort of globalised international age, you get clubs, fans who've been brought up thinking this club is, is, is a good thing and, is, a, um, and is, is, is praiseworthy not just for the football it plays but for its whole kind of mm. essence. And you're thrown into an issue like sports washing or financial doping or human rights abuses in the UAE and 
and clubs and fans fans natural reaction they have been trained to think I have to defend my club for that. That is the battle I can fight. That is me performing as being a fan. And, and just so you know, we're not picking on or seemingly picking on Manchester City fans because I think they are newer to this as a as the freshest of the top six clubs, if you like. You know, you want the success that comes with being a big club, but there are obviously downsides to that. People will, will question how you've come about that success and the, the media scrutiny that comes with it. But I thought the same thing when I saw... Manchester United fans le- jumping to Jose Mourinho's defence over the, the style of football. Maybe if accusations about that were being levelled at them by Liverpool because they were playing this wonderful, expansive, exciting style of the game. As United fan on the street, Jose Mourinho does not need you to defend him. In fact, we know that Jose loves nothing more than defending himself on a <laughs> bi-weekly basis in front of the press. But this then gets us on to what I imagine is quite a good way to start the second edition of this podcast. The There's so episode. many different ways to start that new second edition. If we accept, so all the virtue, virtue signaling stuff which we've not talked about, if we accept that fans have been made more distant than ever before from football, why is it that so many, regardless of how distant they actually are physically, are so kind of entwined with their club, their identities are so entwined with the club, that the reaction to any kind of criticism, any kind of allegation, any kind of negative is frankly irrationally angry because well, it is the culture of outra- outrage which um, John Oliver on last week tonight uh, in the week that we are recording did an excellent uh, piece about the, the culture of outrage and how just the smallest thing creates this mushroom cloud of fury because there is now in modern society and there has been for a number of years but particularly now with social media this culture of outrage that suggests that if somebody does something and we heard it from a couple of the tweets and emails earlier if somebody does something that even just provides the tiniest slight against your team that with whom you identify almost sharing blood with to that extent that you have to not only just say well actually I'm not sure that's fair or alternatively that is fair and I accept that which is probably the best thing to do is is to respond to it by piling on to the person who made that claim whether it's a pundit in the in the nation's media eye or whether it's just a, a fan or a retweet or anything like that they pile on completely to get to completely um, uh, to outsize the contribution that person originally made because it wasn't wasn't really worth that response. And that's all fine and all all perfectly correct. But why, within a football context, when we're continually being told that fans have been alienated from the game, do we still identify, as you say, as though our blood is mixed with those clubs? And that's not just necessarily if you live 200 yards away from the stadium. It's often sometimes elevated by living a long way away. And that's something that we're going to get into in episode uh, two. So for episode one... Gentlemen, thank you very much. Coming up next week, we'll get all dark and wonder what kind of apocalypse we're heading for in terms of being a modern football fan before eventually realising everything will be okay in the end. See, it's the Brexit format. It works, it works. Um, By the way, the coming together an FA Cup weekend and international break is more time off than Chinch can handle. So he's in Portugal for the next two shows, or at least he's intending to be. Uh, So we'll catch up with him uh, next week for a soccer story. Uh, Just quickly, this email from our Buffalo-based prospective Buffalo Ed. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you very much for sharing the image of Andy's new tiger tattoo. I now know why the Hull City supporters were so upset when the Allen family proposed rebranding the club as Hull Tigers FC, because I think I think Chinch might have modelled his tattoo on that proposed uh, new emblem. Um, that is Ed, who uh, now says he is hurtling past Syracuse on the way to Buffalo status. Google Maps says that's 150 miles away, Ed, so still uh, plenty of time to go. 
In Chinch's absence, we leave you with a reminder of how to get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook too. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. A thank you to Rory and Steve and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I appreciate that the food has been delivered. So Steve, would you like to describe? It's chicken and bacon rolls. The rolls were baked in the oven. They were not. They, they, they weren't baked from scratch. It's those ones that you yeah, buy like part yeah. half baked. Yeah, um, and which is pretty much a good description of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but the chicken and the bacon has been added by me, it has along added, with the yeah. guacamole and the butter. Stephen, yes. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was a bit suspicious about guacamole with bacon and chicken. I don't know why. I assume that's a popular combination. If it was you, a if, winner, you wasn't it? if you eat it, it must be well established. <laughs> it's fantastic. I sense, though, with the the haste with which you've got through yours, that uh, you've not had enough and maybe would need a, a second helping. Well, there's more going. There's more going. I've, I I was working up at five thirty this morning, so this is we are now entering my evening. Don't don't play one upmanship with me. What time you doing? I was at work at five o'clock. <laughs> ah. What I'm interested about is that you don't like avocado, but you do like guacamole. Yeah, you. Madman. Why do I need to explain myself to you on a <laughs> weekly basis? <laughs> so I was maybe asking, I was the, playing the Corrick role. I was asking on yes. behalf of the audience. Yes. What would be interesting is that as we um, say goodbye to you on this part one, you will notice that part two begins with Rory having a second slice <laughs> of bread, uh, enjoying his chicken and bacon sandwich, because we're going to roll on. We're going to segue, as they say, in both the musical and broadcasting uh, industries into part two, which will miraculously appear as we carry on talking, and it's all going to be magically there.